Hey everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. We have, I can't put an exact stamp on it, but it's almost going on two years, I would guess, that we've been doing this podcast. And, you know, in the beginning, I have these bucket lists of guests of who I want on. And uh, today's guest is probably one of the earliest people that I've been wanting on the show. But because of COVID and other reasons, uh, we just haven't been able to make it happen until recently. But finally, the stars align, the planets align, and Keith Ulrich from Pogo, Microgroove, New Granada, just kind of the mayor of the independent music scene here in the Tampa Bay area, a historian. Uh, he's, he's kind of like one of my Obi-Wans. I have a few Obi-Wans, but he's my, my Tampa Obi-Wan. So thank you so much for finally coming in. I yeah. really appreciate it. As, as you can tell, half this room is populated by paraphernalia, either books yeah. that I've purchased from you. There were banners that I had purchased from you, right. but I felt like that banner, you know, if anybody, if anybody really expresses a desire for something, I feel like it should be with that person generally, sure. you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, my children, I'm not going to give away, but, you know, <laughs> Rage Against the Machine banners and things yeah. of that nature. If it's really something that meant something to you, I had Mike Ramondi and he's like, I know where that came from. That's right, that's right. And then uh, Clay from uh, New World is like, I wanted that so bad. And I was like, well, then that's awesome. It kind of has a story. It yeah. traveled. A, it, the, the circle is complete. Very cool. So uh, I... I, you know, I've started shopping with you before I introduced myself to you. And I really think kind of how I got to form a relationship with you was because of COVID. And it's, yes. it's really kind of cool because for me anyway, and I guess for you is COVID really kind of changed the nature of my patronage of certain places. Sure, yeah, totally. And, you know, you know, you had a certain way of doing it. Rob over at Planet Retro in St. Pete had a yeah. certain way of doing it. Uh, Doug over in uh, Jerk Dog Records in yeah. Sarasota. We go down there a lot. So those are kind of my three flagships, depending on where I'm traveling. Right. Uh, but, you know, luckily you live. Well, luckily for you and luckily for me, you're literally like a, a minute drive up the road. Yeah. So if I've had a bad phone call with a client or a mediation <laughs> didn't go the way I wanted, I'm like, I'm going to go see if you got some fucking new Van Halen in or whatever, you know. But uh, so with your situation with COVID, you were and it was really cool. You were doing door deliveries to yeah. people in the Heights area, That's right. which I have to imagine just completely changed the way you did business for that period of time. Yeah, well, I got I got lucky because just prior to the pandemic, because typically the first few months of, uh, of retail uh, are very dead. January, February, March. Um, I had gotten lucky, whereas in February and March, maybe I picked up a nice collection. I can't remember, but. This, this story done pretty well. So when it came time to make that definitive decision of to shut down slash the, the federal shutdown where businesses had to close, I was faced with, okay, this could be a month. This could be two months. This could be three months. And I was like, well, I've got this shop money and I can either just take it home and put it in the bank and see what happens. Or I could preemptively pay my shop rent with my landlord. Right. And I mentioned Larry, my Olson's VW, my landlord, he's great. And when I mentioned it to him, he actually was like, why would you want to do that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. keep your money. Let's just see what happens. And I said, well, no, I'm good for it. I've got the money. So I think that that was a, a, a roll of the dice that weighed in my favor because I, I, I paid my rent all the way through July. And so then I was, I, I, A, I was, could kind of relax and sit back and go, I don't have to worry about the store for 90 days. But then I was like, 
but I should have some sort of income coming in. So that's when I started doing the Instagram and Facebook posts. So I would just go to the shop once a week. I grab 10 or 20 records, take a picture of me holding them and going, this record, 25 bucks. So that wasn't something you did beforehand. No. Because it's great. And it's funny because each of you have a different way of doing it. Yeah. Like you now, it's you do all the spines. Yeah. Sometimes you'll flip through, but you'll do all the spines. Rob will flip through. Yeah. Um, Doug at Jerk Dog will pull out the album and hold it there. And then Manny does it like it's a World War II like news thing where he's like, this is such and such. It's coming out on this day. And it's, blah, blah, blah. it's funny because you each kind of have your signature sure. way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I didn't mean to cut you off, but. Do you think it's something that will have longevity in how you market, or do you think you'll do it forever? Well, we've always done the Facebook and social media, you know, posting and sharing and stuff like that. It's just during COVID, we had to get creative as far as sales. Yeah. So what I did was I would say, hey, this record's twenty dollars, but for twenty five dollars, I'll ship it to you, or I'll do a porch drop off within a five mile radius. And so, man, it just blew up. I was selling three, four, five records a day, and then which doesn't seem like a lot. But when I have no overhead because I prepaid my rent and expenses it's all. and no electric and no AC because I'm not using it at the shop, no utilities. So once a week, I package up all the records. I Google map out my route and I tell my wife, hey, I'm taking off for about four hours. And it was really cool. Like I'd knock on the door and I'd stand 10 feet back and, hey, it's your friendly neighborhood record store guy. It was really cool. Yeah. It was really. Uh, did it for you several times. Very. <laughs> For my wife who's listening, she he only did it once, but he did it a bunch of times. Yeah, um, no, but it was there was something uh, comforting. I don't want to say comforting, but it it almost seemed like a throwback to like yeah. the milkman, like That's you right. said, yeah. you know. And so, you know, where there was so much to not look forward to in a day, so much fear. Um, confusion, uh, lack of kind of what will tomorrow hold, knowing that like these kind of things were going on. Yeah. It was, um, it was, uh, comforting in a, in a, in a strange way for me. It was for me too. Not to mention retail therapy. And, yeah. you know, and, and then the story that I told myself is, well, I'm not going to a bunch of concerts. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just spending the money differently. I'm not right. spending more. I don't know if that's, if that actually worked out to be true, but <laughs> that's what I tell myself. Well, and it was, it was, it was good for me too, you know, A, because I run a business and I want that business to succeed. And obviously nobody knew what was happening, especially that early on, you know, April, May, June. Um, so it was a time to get creative while having kind of, it sounds crappy to say during a pandemic, but while having fun running a business. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't like, I mean, I was going the extra mile with the deliveries and stuff literally, but it, it made it, uh, the anxiety level just dropped drastically, you know, with that. There was seeing people, like you said, I'd knock on the door, talk to them for a few minutes. They're probably, you're probably the best part of their day. You know, I mean, probably that's still true. I mean, most people that are coming to a record store aren't coming there anxious and you know how people come to me and how people come to you are two different worlds, but even more so now, you know, that's like, it's like, you know, the, you know, I see Elliot when he's got the mail comes yeah. and he b- opens up his boxes or you're like Santa Claus. Yeah. I mean, in, in a lot of ways. So that's pretty cool. Um, but now tell me this because I, I hate to say this, but probably the best year for my business financially was COVID sure. for different reasons than I would suspect it might have been for people like you and not to say that it was, but I would have to imagine that because people were home. Yes. I, well, if people have been asking me, of course, the last whole year, how's the business doing? Are you staying? Because you hear these horror stories 
uh, restaurants closing and low staff and this and that. And well, yeah, it's just me. Right. I, it's, it's me. I, I have, I have a, so you have a small nut to, to make yeah, every I month. Have a yeah. Friend David that helps me out on Sundays for five hours. And even that just started back in December. So from June, when I, July, when I reopened through December, it was just me seven there six days a week. Um, so I lost track of last one. <laughs> we were talking about what, no, that's fine. It happens. Uh, whether or not business improved during oh, yeah. COVID. So we, we've done really well. You know, I'm not going to say anybody got rich, you know, contrary to popular belief, record store owners aren't making a lot of money. But I mean, is there a record store? Is there a record store owner of your ilk? I'm not talking. Well, there's not really many chains anymore, but I mean, it's a it's a passion project yes. in most ways, isn't it? I mean, 100%. is there a, and many guys who are crushing it in the vinyl world? I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe the owner of Amoeba in California. Well, sure. But for every one of those, there's tens of thousands yeah. of, you know, I don't know. But the point I was getting at was. I, I've had the conversation many times because a lot of the neighborhood are concerned and they want to know how we're doing is I, I tell people it's not lost on me that I sell what I call an indoor product. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why we've seen a lot of people reading more, listening to music more, uh, streaming, you know. Did you try and buy a bike in the past year? Oh, it's hard. Those are not indoor uh, uh, items, but man alive, because people weren't going to gyms, bikes, you couldn't find them anywhere. And so it was kind of interesting. So, yeah, the, 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 the short answer to your to the long conversation is, yeah, the, this, we did well this year. That's good. That's yeah. good to hear. Yeah, stayed alive. So that's this year. Let's let's go back in time because you've got quite a extensive history. Um, are you Florida born? Born and raised 49 years, um, fifth, sixth, maybe seventh generation Floridian. Oh, wow. Old so you're, you're, you're legit. You're OG. <laughs> yeah. What is Ulray? What's national? Well, that's, uh, it's German. Okay. Um, and I have a pretty funny story about that. Going to judge. Sure. So I love about, funny stories. About 35, 40 years of my life and my family's life, we used to say that we were from um, the Netherlands. Okay. Dutch. And that's because my grandfather, before he died years ago, would, oh, we're Dutch, we're Dutch. And so at, it was actually at his funeral. So maybe 15 years ago, we were all there and somebody was talking about our name and our lineage and a cousin or seven said something about being Dutch. And my uncle said, Dutch? We're German. Well, it turns out, long story short, my grandfather, who was in World War II, um, you know, for reasons that were obvious then, he had great disdain for Germany and the German you know, World War II. And he just he told a different story. Couldn't even say the word Germany. Right. So uh, basically Dutch was his mispronunciation of Deutsch. Oh. So just because of him being this Southern guy who mispronouncing a word, um, we thought our entire your life. Familial was, identity was yeah. just misplaced. Yeah. 100%. People would ask me, what's your background? Oh, you know, English, Dutch. Did no. you, have you ever done the, the DNA deal? No, my sister just did it recently. And it's funny because I said I'm sixth or seventh generation of Florida. My sister did it and she called me laughing. She says, I don't even know why I did this. It literally was 99.9 .9 repeating Northern European with 0% anything else. Yeah. Like as white it's sure. European as you can get. It, they, do, they do evolve over time though. Yeah. Like when I did it, since I've done it, it, it has 
it has narrowed scope. It has gotten more articulate. Uh, you know, I have a couple of stories on that. One of which I always tell, which is that I never knew I was part Jewish, but I found out that I was uh, Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, another thing was that uh, I, the, I found out the specific town in Ireland where I'm predominantly from and my daughter's friend's dad, who is Irish, I, I showed it to him and he's like, I literally live like across the street from that dot. So he's like right there. And then the third story, and this is a recent one is recently uh, a, a person friend requested me on Facebook, last name Sheridan. It's a, a female. She's a, uh, accountant and a bodybuilder in like oh. Melbourne or something, but okay. we started talking and it turns out we're cousins of some repute. And awesome. and I'm always wary of, you know, yeah, we're cousins. And by the way, you know, if you send me money, I'll, you know, show, you know, so I'm always worried it's the whole, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's it, the prisoner, what's that Spanish prisoner or whatever the whole, sure. you know, gambit is. But in any event. Yeah. The other side of that too is, you know, I'm not a big history buff as far as my family goes. I just, I really don't care. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, you know, and it's funny, you know, it, it, especially the times we live in now, not to get into a side conversation, you know, truly being from the South, sixth, seventh generation Floridian, you know. You may not like I what you find. <laughs> I don't care. You know what, oh, I, okay. what I mean by I don't care is I obviously care about the state of the, of the world we live in. Sure. I'm very pro, very liberal, BLM, the whole thing. I'm saying I don't care about my heritage. I'm not the South proud. It doesn't I, identify it's you. circumstance why I was born here. However, the one note trivia of my family to, to prove again, like just how boring of a lineage I have is my grandmother's maiden name was priest. And there's a direct line to a Gabriel priest who came over on the Mayflower. Okay. So it's like, again, it's like, there is nothing interesting about my bloodline. At all. Just a straight line. Just a it's straight so line. Boring. It's so boring. It's so vanilla. So you're one of three, one of three, two sisters. Two sisters. Yeah. All right. And you're the youngest. That's me. And what did mom and dad do? Uh, well, they're both retired now. Okay. They're older in their uh, almost 80s. Uh, my dad for years was in the pest control business. Uh, it's funny. I was just having a pest control. You can't live in Florida and not have a pest control. And then my mom was a housewife until they were divorced in the 80s. And then she went to work for a, a concrete company here locally that she worked her way up to different positions. Gotcha. How did music enter your life? Uh, was it always an interest? Was there someone in the family who was no, into it? You know, I didn't have one of these, you know, mentors of mothers pouring stuff, you know, like we had maybe, we had one of those wire racks with like maybe 1245. Sure. And, you know, a stack of records. And But we were always listening. I, I grew up on the radio, you know, um, I, I grew up going to church, sang in the choir from the age of four up through 15 years uh, beyond that. And, um, you know, so I always loved singing. Uh, when I was in high school, I was in the chorus. Where'd you go to high school? King High School. Okay. Um, so I was in the chorus there for several years. Um, Being in band or did you pick up no, any instruments no, at that time? I, no. And I, I, it's, you know, I just love singing. Uh, like my senior year of high school of the seven classes, four of them were vocal and chorus classes. Right. Like, I loved it. And by that age, by, you know, because you're graduating, you're 17, 18. So it was, I was probably 15, 16 when I first discovering like punk rock and stuff. But I didn't pick up the drums or anything like that until after high school. Now, crazy. you, I don't think, lived in Clermel, but you no. seem to have a shared history with some of the people. Yeah, Decker, yeah. Kaiser, yeah. Sexton, yeah. Uh, Brian Schaefer, all these different people. Yeah. How Just from music or from? Uh, well, main, high school, too. Yeah. Um, it, uh, my gr first girlfriend ever, you know, for three first three years of my having a girlfriend, she was from 
Palm River. Okay. Claremont. Sure. It's actually be very careful because they take this I seriously. The line. She yeah. was Palm River. Okay. Um, and and she was friends with Rob and those guys too. So I mean, you know, we there is common ground there. Parties and football games and nothing like that. No hangouts. No, just no, just, no, 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 no. High school for me was very just going to school. Yeah. And I was also very active in church in the youth group at that time. So I would go to church. Uh, I didn't start to. Um, I met Joe Kaiser and yeah. Bob in high school. Uh, before they got transferred to another school, uh, because of the, they divided the line. Right. Claremel were then sent to Brandon. Um, but I didn't start meeting, like hanging out with people until just after high school when I started really, I mean, I started going to shows when I was 16, 17. Yeah. So I knew these people, but I didn't hang out with them. So, so 49, what years are you 16, 17? Like, uh, like 89, well, I 80? 89, I was 17. Okay. So shows at 16, 17, 89. I'm trying to think what bands these shows are, are going to be that you're well, seeing. Well, like my first. There's always the first and favorite question. Who was well, your first? Who was your favorite? punk rock show that yeah. I ever went to was um, I went to go see um, our friends Awake, the popular yeah, yeah. Um, with Meat Wagon and Dayglo Abortion at the Sunset Club. That okay. was my first punk rock show. Okay. Uh, my first like big punk rock show probably just a few months later was um seven seconds ourselves tour genocide okay seven seconds really has kind of left a mark locally i know yes. that they've worked with frank and worked with the slap guys and i, I guess he's produced some albums i don't know they, they, their second seven inch slap second seven inch time alone came out on pacifist which okay label. okay and then over the years they've maintained uh, i guess they've just developed know. relationships yeah. having played through the area yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, late '80s, going into '90s, you graduate high school. Yeah. What's what's your plan? What's your none? None. Um, um, of course, like anybody, you know, parents want you to go to college and all that. I had uh, to this day, at this age, I still think it's ridiculous that a person that's 15, 16 knows what they want to do. You know what I mean? Like when you have children, oh yeah, they're really getting into this, or they're stu- they're they're doing college prep for this. And how do they know they want to do that? You know, I think those are the exceptions to the rule. I think I think most people don't know what the fuck they want until the day they die. You know, I I I I know what I don't want. I'm really clear on what I don't want. Want, but I would say by the time I graduated high school, I was full on into going to shows in the punk rock scene. So that's what I wanted to do. So punk rock. kind of comes from a different place of the brain than the church life and all that. So was this a... It it coincided for several years. I was active at my church all the way up until I was 21, 22. Was it a response to that world, kind of an evening out of that world? Like, did they just kind of existed independent of each other? No, actually, there was a little bit of a crossover. Because I, I grew up, even though I grew up in East Tampa near the fairgrounds, we went to church in Brandon. And we went to this very large church. It's still there. First Baptist Church of Brandon. My mom still goes there. Um, and it was a really big church and it had a massive youth group. I mean, you know, I, I've talked to people that are like, oh, my youth group is 20 people. Dude, our Wednesday night youth group is 250, 300 people. Yeah. And the Baptists know how to do it, man. They get, yeah. they get a lot of people in well, there. Here's what I'm getting at though. Yeah. It, it, to me, and of course, my eyes have been opened as far as how things were being perceived back then, but they were pretty lenient. I mean, there was kids that were getting into punk rock. I mean, you know, you come to youth group with a mohawk or an opportunity sure. shirt or whatever. And um, so there, there was a little bit of a crossover. You know, yeah. I can remember specifically one night going to a uh, youth group on Wednesday night to help out because I was older. So I was kind of like a mentor. Sure. Out. 
and then leaving with my friend Julie and a couple of and driving to the paint factory to go see Green Day. Wow. 1989, Yeah. I mean, literally leaving the church parking lot. Hey, this show's about to start. We need to hit it. Yeah. Let's get going. Yeah. You know, so there was definitely a crossover. Yeah. Time and a little bit of a, the, the younger people that were kind of getting involved with that. You know what I mean? Well, for sure. I mean, you know, and, and, and I don't want to get too much into religion, but, uh, you know, you know, I know that if, if you're trying to grow your, your church or grow your, uh, what's your fellowship, right? I don't know what the words are. You can't be exclusive. You got to be inclusive. And so, you know, I think that was where you started to see all of a sudden youth pastors were like kind of trying to be the cool guys. Like, Hey, I didn't, you know, and yeah. so yeah. that whole thing kind of happens. Sure. So when did the drums enter the picture? So I'd always loved the drums. Like even as a kid, like I just, that was the instrument when I would see somebody playing it. Did you have a drummer, like a favorite? I mean, I do now. I mean, like when, well now, sure. But well, what I mean now is, is when I look at my influences starting the drums, I'll get into that. So when I was younger, you know, most people talk about things like, you know, Phil Collins in the air tonight, you know, oh, yeah. drum fill, blah, blah, blah. To me, it was even simpler things, you know, like the, like the, uh, like the three Tom hit on Hotel California. Yeah. You just yeah. can't kill the beast. Boom, yeah. Boom, boom, boom. yeah. I was like, what did he just do? Yeah. No, it was nothing. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, so I always loved the drums. And um, so right after high school, some friends and I wanted to start a band. And I thought I was going to be a singer because, like I said, I had you know, that background, yeah. experience. Um, but I had pretty good rhythm. And so we, you know, it was basically like picking and choosing. Well, I got a guitar. I'll be, and so I was like, I'll, I'll go by drum set. Drummer, I've always said it. Drummer is the relief pitcher, <laughs> punter, yeah. whatever the special teams or the special kind of whatever is that can play into their 40s yeah. and 50s. That's what the drummer is. Because most, you know, if you look at what part of a band is in the most bands yeah. drummers and bassists are usually in way sure. more bands than oh. guitarists and singers yeah. because yeah. everybody needs them yeah so anyway go ahead so i just i just bought a drum set and i i taught myself to play i just what kind of set was it how many it was pieces a 700 it was a five piece okay uh until this will tell you how naive i was we were practicing with my band and the right rack tom had broke uh-huh I didn't know that you replaced heads. I thought it was broken. That was just it. That was the end so, of the story. Oh, the singer in my band, he's like, dude, uh, just take it off. Like, can you do that? <laughs> so I took it See off. See these little screws here? Yeah, I took <laughs> it off. And to this day, I play a four piece with her. I, I play like how I played yeah. when I took that rack tom off, you know, because I just didn't know. You know what I mean? I didn't know. I thought it was broken. Sure. You know? Well, I I, I love those stories, but you know, I I, I think it was uh was it <sighs> Mike Watt, somebody was talking about how, like, he didn't know that you actually tuned strings. Oh, he just yeah. thought some people like tight strings, some yeah. people like loose strings. <laughs> it was just my, like. My, my funniest story about learning is when I first got the kit and I brought it home. I mean, dude, I, nothing. I mean, this is pre internet. You know, yeah. Who's going to show you? So I, I, I'm setting it up, I'm putting up the legs on the kick drum, and I take out the kick pedal and I attach it, and I, and I just kind of hit it with my hand. And I'm like, what the heck? Does this even work? I had put the pedal on the front head where the air hole is oh yeah like eight yeah yeah pedal. yeah and so the mallet was going into the, the hole, hole. And and like, this is bullshit this doesn't sound like anything <laughs> that's funny but i played my ass off and you know six months later we were playing shows and opening for bands and that's that's awesome and the drum drums just fascinate me because you know at least for me you know 
very rarely for anybody is drums their entry point of music. Now, obviously, school band, if, you, if you're in a marching band or whatever, then that was your way. But I feel like drums are the most alien instrument for people to learn. But at the same time, it shouldn't be because organically, historically, yeah. hitting something to make a sound has probably been around the longest. Now, sure. arguably, you're hitting something with a stringed instrument, sure. too, right. and even with your vocal cords. Yeah. But, but with drums, you know, it, I, it, it's harder there. You know, I've talked to Dmitry Stryanovich. I've talked to uh, Scott Miller, uh, John Nowicki, all these different people. And, you know, they all kind of have their different entry points in their own different languages. And like, I forget if it was Dimitri who it was. And I was like, how do you write music? And he's like, well, I name this part, this thing. And if I play it three times, I do that times three and then this and whatever else. So it does, it's not quite as pretty as the tab or the sheet music. It's yeah. So it's just interesting to me. But then another thing that happened is, is I uh, started listening to this podcast, um, uh, crash bang boom podcast. And it's a, it's a drummer's podcast for metal and hardcore and all this other stuff. Uh, and so if, if it's a drummer that I like, I listen to it, but, uh, Dale Crover from the, from the misfits, okay. um, listen to him. And I didn't, you know, it, it opened up my understanding and appreciation for the jumps now where I seek out the drumming in a band yeah. and, you know, the cymbal height, the position of your drums, how high your seat is, sure. what kind of breathing are you doing? How much are you stretching out? Yeah. Like all these things that unless you know about drumming would yeah. never even understand are going into what a person's doing. Right. It just really opened up like, Oh wow. That's really, and not only that, but you mentioned the, uh, the Tom hit and hotel California is, you know, with metal, which is one of my near and dear to my heart. Now it's gotten to the point where it's like, how fast can you, it's almost this unbroken sound, yeah. you know, the beats per minute are, it, it, it's almost like, yeah, just program a computer to do it. But what I've grown to appreciate is to know when not to hit the drums right. or to know what space to leave sure. or to know how to play with the song or against the song yeah, or play, yeah. you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff is just, I think if you have a drummer who really can kind of add to a song by, you know, when they add to a song, how they add to a song really sets that band apart from a lot of sure. what else you're listening That's to. Right. So what was that first band's name? My very first band was called High Chair. High Chair. Yeah. Great we, name. We were around for mm, maybe a year and a half. We okay. We played some great shows. I mean, that's when we really just dove in. I mean, we played with Filth and Plaid Retina and Open for Green Day. And, and were you working at the same time as that was going on? Yeah, I was working at a record store. Was that what it was? Mm -hmm. Now, was it at, uh, what, what was the record store that you're working at? I was working at East Lake Mall. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. Down that park. Sure. Uh, I worked at a music store for eight years or six years, eighty-eight to ninety-four, called Music Express. Okay. And what it was was Montgomery Wards was one of the anchor stores at Eastlake. Sure. And they leased space to this company to put a record store in there. So it got confused. A lot of people. Now you're calling it a record store. Was it a record store at that time, or was it tapes and CDs? Well, when I started, it was records too. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was vinyl. Um, it was 88, 1988. But this was still when vinyl was being sold on a, not, oh. you know, intentionally. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. So we had, we had everything. And then about a year or two into it, I can remember we, we got a letter from the home office, pack them up, vinyl's dead. And we packed up all the records and sent them off. And wow. But to, to kind of bounce off of that, to me, the term record store I mean, if you look at it as, as, as you take the word record, it's recording. It, it's yeah. Record. Sure. So, yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's like whatever's in there, it's still right. It's just, it's just, it's just the, the general. But there's become a, a, not a niche, a culture 
behind vinyl that you didn't have with tapes or CDs? Uh, I would argue that. Well, let's, let's, well, well, I, 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 and I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I was in college in the early nineties and oh, yeah. so everybody in every car had their huge ring binder yes. of sleeves with all their CDs and that's a culture. That is a culture. So I, I, you've, you've converted me. Um, How many case logic zipper cases did you Oh have? my God. Well, the thing that go. crushed me is, is the <laughs> truck that I had in college. I went to UCF and I had a Ford F-150 and the back window had one of those little sliding panels and those are the easiest cars in the world to break into because literally all you had to do is just with the meat of your hand just pop it and that window would come out and so i had my life's work in the biggest fucking binder ever and one one broke car you know car burglary and your whole collection's gone and so there's no worse well there's probably worse feelings but a worse feelings rebuying you know, with vinyl, there's a reason. Oh, this one's a different color or something, yeah. or this right. one's a first right. pressing, or this one's whatever. With CDs, I mean, it's CDs a CD. Yeah. yeah. It's like buying this again is just killing me, you know? Yeah. And so, at some point along the way, then, uh, I mean, well, I started with tapes, obviously. Sure. And tapes were great, you know, folding out those covers. I mean, yeah. I remember getting, you know, Injustice for All. I remember getting uh, Check Your Head. I remember getting Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Sure. I remember getting Joshua Tree, all these, and just reading the liner notes and reading the lyric sheets and all these things. And, you know, but th- there was some work to it. You know, you want to listen to Red Hill Mining or whatever. It's like, okay, I got to fast forward this and then check. <laughs> Are we there yet? No. Okay. Fast forward a little bit longer. Check. Okay. We're there yet? No. All right. So then you get to CDs where, okay, no, now there's no longer sides. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. check your track. And I'm going to nerd out on you for a second. Please do. Red Hill Mining Town was track one, side B. So you could have just fast forwarded to the end. Okay. Well, there you go. Bad example. Bad example. But but uh, I, I forgot that your U2 pedigree is greater than mine. You, is it is it uh, Unforgettable Fire? Which is the one that you love? Uh, I love them all. Well, I love a certain area, but uh, Unforgettable Fire is my favorite. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, anyway, I digress. So, um, then CDs, it's just, you know, tr- track ahead or shuffle yeah. or whatever. Sure. And then comes streaming, which right. I imagine is a big kind of dark era in, in, in the world. Yeah, I mean, I didn't work in stores then, you know what I mean? Sure. I worked in, the last time I, I worked in a store from 88 to 94, and then I didn't work in a record store again until 2008. When, what what year did Pogo start? 1994. Okay. And would we agree that that's the biggest act that you've been a part of, of all the acts oh, that you've yeah, been a, yeah. Okay. Now, I, I'm, 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 my senility's kicking in. At some point along the way, did you play in a band with Joe or Frank? Yes, I did before that. Okay. Well, what was that? Balance. Okay. Cause, cause they've both been in recently and I remember them telling me a story about being in Germany and playing okay. with, uh, Down by Law or something else like yeah. that. And like the three of you were like rotating in and out yeah. and singing and playing. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever remember Hunter Herring, who was yeah. one of the drummers. Okay. So, so he and I, yeah, Hunter, okay, the, the Hunter Herring was another. He and I went to high school with each other. And so I always remember that was like my one big connection because they were on Epitaph for one of their albums and, you know, with Bad Religion and yeah. a lot of, you know, one of the Bretts, you know, yeah. that was their label. And that just seemed like the coolest thing ever. Well, it was flattering for me because we didn't know, we didn't know Hunter. He was yeah. Kind of from a different scene, St. Pete. Um, and uh, so when we got, went to see Dombolo in Germany, we didn't even know that he was in the band or that there was somebody from, the Bay Area. The Bay Area. Sure. And so when we got there early and we were hanging out, I remember Hunter coming to me going, 
man, you're in high chair. I saw you open for Green Day. And that was really flattering for me. Like, whoa, dude, yeah. I'm here to see you yeah. in Germany and you're bringing, you're yeah. calling me out. That was so flattering and very nice. Of them was that your first trip abo- abroad to play? That was my first tour ever. So Balance was riding between high chair and pogo. Okay. So when I joined Balance, I'd only been playing drums like a year and a half. Who else was in Balance? It was Frank Lacatino on okay. vocal, Joe Kaiser on guitar. Uh, originally it was Sam Williams on guitar who went on to be in Down by Law, yeah. but then Dave Peralta joined. It's like a reverse super group. Yeah. It's like, it's like a super group before everybody went out on yeah. their own and kind of developed their own and thing. And Kevin Koss, uh, was bass who Kevin went on to play with the Pink Lincolns for a very long oh, sure. time and is, is in the current, has been in Down by Law for the last 20 years. Right. So, um, balance was crazy. Yeah. So I'd never toured. I mean, I played plenty of shows. Now, Balance was made up of Joe and Frank from Slapper Reality, so yeah. they had touring experience and stuff. So I remember jo- joining them. Um, well, it was funny because Frank and Joe, I love Slapper Reality. They were highly influential, important band to me growing up and, and, and being a young drummer myself and a, a young band. Um, but they also, they were kind of known around town as being kind of rough guys, you know, like not putting up with any shit and stuff. So I remember being at work. I'd heard Slappers on the outs. And I was at work at the record store and Joe and Frank walked in and my, I'll admit my first thought was, fuck, what did I do or say? To them? Yeah. They're coming to collect some money or what collect some, <laughs> collect some broken bones or something. Friendly. We got along. Joe and I were friends. I, I didn't know Frank too well. Um, but they were coming to ask me to be in the band. How Frank, well, I, I only know the Frank of today. I don't know the Frank of back then. Uh, but it's funny. I do. I, and I talk about this with him. There was an article about him and them from back then yeah. that I clearly remember his job. But anyway. Oh, the picture on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah with the Bucks, with the Bucks jersey on. Yeah. I, I, I remember when that came out. But anyway. Um, how Frank looks and Frank's the, your experience of Frank today are two very different sure, things. Yeah. You know, he's a hockey player. He's got the big beard, he's a big Italian guy, but he's, he couldn't be a sweeter. Yes. Joe, Joe's a badass. I mean, yeah. you know, between his judo and his oh, jujitsu yeah. and, you know, he's yeah. just, he's got, he's, he's, he's all knees and ankles, but uh, in any event, um, so I, I appreciate you telling me about them coming to see you. So they, did they come to you to ask you to be yeah, in the band? They came to ask me to be in the band. Cause like, cause my band high chair, I don't want to say we were like popular, but we'd kind of gotten no, you know what I mean? Like reputation. We had a good reputation. Was it a pop punk type uh, of deal? Not, yeah. Not pop punk that you would think like blink, but more like descendancy type pop. Punk sure. Well, know? I mean, they're the, they're the, um, we were more of influenced by like, you know, lemon heads and stuff like that. Um, there was a band from South Florida called quit. Mm-hmm. Still very, uh, revered. In right. The rock scene. And they were a big influence. So yeah, they came to ask me and that was, um, February of 92. And then a year later, 90, March of 93, we were flying to Europe for five weeks. Wow. Recorded an album and we're going to tour the album. I'd never been on tour. So my first tour was... Can you put yourself mentally where you were at at that time? Like how the world... Did you feel like you had the world by the toe or were you scared shitless or were you... Just, all of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we were all kind of... We were all excited. I think a lot of it was just feigning confidence. Cause sure. Kids, Take it till you make it. Yeah. Fun, yeah. You know, and it's like, dude, you're flying across the ocean in 1993. You know, were you bringing your equipment with you or did you have a no, contact over there? A snare drum. We were on tour with a label band. Okay. So we just used their back line. So gotcha. like a snare and my pedal. Uh-huh. And um, it was exciting. Yeah. But it was also kind of a little scary. You know, I think Joe mentioned that even when we were here. It's like, we didn't know. I mean, we landed at the airport. And we're like, are these people even going to really, is this a prank? Yeah. You know yeah. And they showed up and then we get in the van. We have a couple days before our first show. And I can remember the getting in the van and the guy from the label's like, 
all right, this is going to be exciting. It was grueling, man. We played like 35 shows or something in five weeks. That's fucking bad. I mean, it's grueling, but at the same time, like 35 shows is amazing. That's like fast forwarding your experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember him saying right when we got in the van from the airport, like, it's going to be great. It's a couple towns in East Germany because the wall would only be down three or four years. Right. There's a couple towns where, you know, we might need some bats and weapons. Yeah. What the fuck have we got ourselves into here? Of course, none of those things happen. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was exciting. And we still joke and talk about it as this great moment in our lives. Well, I, I, I ask this and I'm, I'll be interested. I, th- I may have even talked to you about this before, but I'll be interested to hear whether or not you have a story about this is you hear a lot, on, especially on that drum podcast, German fans are very different from American fans and that they're very analytical and very into giving you feedback like after the fact. Well, was that your experience or? Well, I think Maybe I don't know. Well, they 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 more will stand and watch, is what I've heard. Well, you know, they, were, they had Slapper Reality had a name, yeah, and, and they had actually released a seven inch on the label we were on. Sure. So we were kind of touring as ex Slapper Reality. Yeah. So we were kind of being put into these shows with a built in scene. Yeah. So people were there to see this band from America, right. members of Slapper Reality, in a punk rock scene. You know what I mean? Sure. So I'm sure that that did happen a little bit. Um. But I don't recall that being prevalent. Or now, was balance more a little bit harder uh, in in vibe, or is it was it still in I the? I think it was right in the wheelhouse of what you know. We even did a slap song on tour. Okay. From the seven inch. No, I didn't mean slap. I meant uh, high chair and. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. yeah, uh, yeah, no. Balance was straight up post hardcore <laughs> Sam I Am type. Sam I Am is one of the bands that we hear in this room yeah. often as kind of an inspiration for a lot of local bands. Seven yeah. Seconds, Sam I Am, for the younger crowd, Green Day. I mean, if you're under 40 you and you play in a punk band most likely dookie somehow was something that you're emulating so um, i had to learn to play fast i mean it wasn't like fast hardcore but like the, the ping rides and the sure. 16s and fast man and I'm, the only thing that I, I had learned this trick like i said i've only been playing like a year and a half yeah and i learned this trick with my foot single foot doing this really fast double kick yeah and that that really lends itself Who's the guy, Sandoval, Pedro Sandoval from Terrorizer, who he used to do the pivot, yeah. pivot his foot on the pedal, and yeah. somehow that makes it hit faster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get this podcast, man. It's, it's, <laughs> it's teaching me stuff. Anyway, so how long uh, before Pogo starts? So Balance went on. Basically, they bled right into another. Okay. So like you mentioned earlier, how drummers were in a lot of bands. Between 92 and 94, I, uh, there was a period where I was in five bands at one time. Oh, wow. Some of them were goof-off joke bands, yeah. funny lyrics, and just being stupid, and some were bands we were trying to do stuff, but Balance was my main band. Right. The main band. Um, so uh, I want to say Balance kind of was coming to an end in um, the spring of 94. Okay. Um, stuff was going on internally. And then also there was some regaining interest in Slap from other labels. So they were talking about. So I was like, well, why are we continuing to balance the Slap? You know? And it was right at that time uh, that Pogo had started. Um, with some friends of mine. Whose idea was Pogo? Can you can you yeah, trace yeah, it back yeah, to yeah. a specific person? Or yes, a... I can. So Pogo was Matt Slate. Okay. On guitar, he's a bartender at the Independent. And Matt Slate, I, I free, he and I are interacting. I never met him in person, but on Facebook, we talk. If you've <laughs> never gone to the Independent, yeah. you probably served. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Matt is one of my closest friends. Um, uh, Kobe Finley was the singer. She okay. was 16 at the time, okay. maybe 15. Uh, and then my a very good friend of mine, Brad, who I just known from the scene. And so they had a drummer and they were ready to play a show. And 
What was the pitch on on Pogo? Well, he, well, this is what I'm getting. Okay. At. So I hadn't heard about him at all. Right. Uh, and then um, I guess I met Brad and Matt at a show at the Stone Lounge, which was a popular venue where I worked. And Brad was like, "Yeah, we're starting this band. It's got a girl singer." Which I was way into female voice, still am. And um, I was like, "Oh, that sounds so cool." It's like, yeah, we're playing a show. We're opening for Unwound. Like, yeah, 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 first yeah. Show. Well, it turns out the story goes that the original drummer who they knew from high school came from kind of a religious background and his father was not too jazzed on him playing an Ebor like the devil's lair. Yeah. And so he, nothing good happens in Ebor after 2 PM. They played the show with a drum machine. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, it was after that show that they came to me and asked me to just fill in, right. Fill in until we find a drummer. Yeah. So they gave me a demo and I immediately just loved it. I was like, this is awesome, man. So I came to the first practice fully prepared. Like they thought they were going to show me the songs. You knew you were afraid to go. They were like, this is awesome. So we booked two or three shows. And then it was probably during those couple of months of those two or three shows that balance just folded. Right. And so I was just like, kind of like to be in if you guys want me. Yeah. Well, for hearing it from the other side, that was when a lot of labels, as you mentioned, were looking for anybody to okay. be the next, you know, whatever. And yeah. so, you know, if they sound like this, let's, yeah. let's make them an offer and yeah. see what happens. And isn't that around the time they moved up to New York after that? Uh, they probably played around town for about a year and then moved up to New York. Okay. Cause I, I heard about that whole yeah. <laughs> excursion. So how does, how do, when do you meet Susie? When, where does she come so in the Susie picture? She was in another band at the time. Okay. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I worked at the Soul Lounge. I was the door. Yeah, yeah. I worked there for a year and a half. Um, and that was just the, one of the cool places to play local shows, touring band. I mean, just incredible shit. Um, you name it, the band played there, dude. Archers of Love, Sebado, Pegboy, Super Drag, uh, Anti Scene, whatever. Right. And, uh, Yellow Tango. And Susie was in a uh, punk band called Stitch. Okay. And we liked them. And so we actually, when we did uh, our second tour with Kobe in the summer of 95, we did a five-week tour. And that first week was all Florida dates. Right. And we brought Stitch with us. Um, So we knew Susie from the scene, this and that. So fast forward to like December of 95, uh, when our singer quit, um, to just pursue other things yeah, stuff like that. Um, we kind of nabbed Susie from her band. Now what, what came first the relationship or the, the singer uh, between her and I? Yeah. Oh dude. Yeah. yeah. We didn't, we didn't get together until like 1999. Like okay. Years later. So you guys were in a band for a while before there yeah, was a, yeah, she, it's funny when people, we talk about Pogo, the band was only around for like two years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we just did a lot in those two years. Sure. So she was in a band. She joined. We uh, immediately recorded a seven inch, put that out, recorded another seven inch single. When do you play with Jawbreaker? Not until about two years ago. That's only recently? Oh, I thought that was a like way back in the day thing. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so when does the band go on hiatus as it were? So we, we did a, we did a five, six week tour with Susie in okay. six, which was awesome. And then we come Southeast, back. just Florida. No, just no, no, no. Five, six weeks, man. All the way up to Boston, up to Chicago, Midwest. I mean, in a, in a, in an Econo line or in a, line, a to Econo line club wagon. We jam Econo. Yep. Very cool. And we did that. And then, um, we came back, started recording our album and I had gotten into a relationship. Just wasn't very healthy. Yeah. I mean, we've all been there. Yep. Uh, and it just kind of tore me apart and I made poor decisions and ended the band, you know, like, uh, probably six months later. Sure. And so we ended the band. We were supposed to, we were booking another huge tour and I just said, F this, I'm out. 
And, um, you know, things were starting to kind of happen for the band. We'd been featured on a cool comp called the Emo Diaries, yeah. with Jimmy World and Sam I Am, a couple other bands. And so there was more visibility happening. And, um, but we, um, we did get back together briefly, like six or seven months later when the CD, we went ahead and put the CD out. Here. Right. And then we did like a hometown album release. Sure. That was it. Yeah. Um, and then about a year or so later, Susie and Matt and I started another band that was basically like Pogo Light. Yeah. It's just a little bit lighter in tone. It's like the various iterations of the Melvins or the, yeah, yeah. We called that the Maccabees. Okay. Uh, which was kind of a, a joke on Susie because she was raised Catholic. Okay. I don't know how much you know about religion, but the Maccabees are the, you have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then there's some certain versions of the Bible where they include this, these books called the Maccabees. Right. And so we just kind of as a joke, we're like, you're in the middle. Ourselves the Maccabees. Yeah. That's what we end up calling. So. Yeah. And we did a tour behind that album with that band as well. And that was a lot of fun, but it was way more chill because we were a little bit older. I had an office job by then. You know what I mean? So it wasn't a fire in your belly was just a simmer instead of a inferno. And that Susie and I, we each had significant others and had broke up at the same time. And the, the thing, the thing about, so you asked me if the relationship came for me, it did. Even though I had other girlfriends, I was always deeply in love. Sure. Just always had a thing. For yeah. Even though her, my best friend was yeah. her boyfriend. Yeah. Nothing ever happened. Yeah. On tour. Um, so what happened was during that time, late nineties, we were out to dinner somewhere and, uh, at Denny's and we were just, we both broken up and Susie says, can I ask you something weird about that photo tour? And I said, what? She goes, was there like a thing? Like, did we have a thing? Yeah. And I just said, yeah, I was completely in love with you. Yeah. She's like, what? And I said, I still am. And a year later, we were married. <laughs> I would bet. I would. I would bet that there's a lot of big decisions that are getting made late night at De- Denny's and Village Inn. <laughs> that kind of is the place where everybody's guard is down. Really? Yeah. Bad. Do you know, moons over Miami. Did you bring it? Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Well, my, my so my wife and I at Stetson. You know, we would study the library clothes, and then we would go to Denny's or go sure. to Village Inn, and yeah. you know, that's when you're you know in the throes of your passion oh, and just professing your love for each other over shitty eggs and yeah. Um, so now let's kind of talk about New Granada. Let's talk about Microgroove. Kind of get me from there to, to the next phase of your life so well they they start at the same time so new granada the label that i run okay last where does the name come from it comes from the 19 late 70s movie over the edge yeah uh with matt Dillon. yeah first matt Dillon's first movie so um some friends and i in the 90s we used to have this thing where late night yeah wags or denny's or something and then we were like dude let's run a movie and then stay up watching it until two or three or four in the morning yeah and it was always these kind of campy movies that you know these kind of cult movies and stuff like that and one night we got over the edge someone's like dude let's watch this movie called over the edge and man it just was awesome man. yeah still i still maintain it is it's dated as hell um i don't know if you anything about it at all. i've seen it but i i have this weird thing what was the one where like a kid gets killed and they found a kid that's get kids at the river's edge or so I get I get the River's Edge, Razor's Edge, and Over the I get the, them all confused. Over the Edge was late seventies, and basically the gist of that was um, it was a planned community, uh-huh. you know, nothing sci-fi or anything sure. dystopian. It was just hey, you know, we're we're building this new community. There's going to be a mall and a bowling alley and this school for the kids and this and that. And what happens is all these these uh, middle class families move in, but then because of either uh, 
money flow or whatever, those amenities never happen. So boredom comes in. And so the kids become, they start doing drugs and they get into trouble. And it's they, basically the suburbs, the whole. Yes. <laughs> that so whole. that's the whole gist of that. Yeah. And the town, the fictional town that this happened. New Granada. New Granada. Great so, album. Well, there you go. That's, so that's even... the story of the label. So we, we watched this movie. And then when we were doing the very first Pogo 7 Inch in 94, um, we had three guys in, the, in, in Brandon, where the band was from, um, that wanted to start a label. Yeah. And they wanted to put out a Pogo 7 Inch. And so we talked and one of them threw out the name New Granada from the movie. And really, Fucking A. So the original idea with New Granada was that it was going to be a co-op. And what I mean by that was is it was just going to be a name that anybody could use. Right. And that happened... For three releases, for Pogo, Susie's band Stitch uh-huh. put out a seven inch, and then another local band, Chester, uh, who I eventually went on to play with, um, put out a seven inch. But then it just kind of slowed for like a year, and nobody was using the name. Right. So we were like, well, let's just use it for ourselves. Yeah. And so we kind of made your Granada like us. And so. Who was Pogo? Well, who was it? Or was it was me, it you Susie, and who else? Okay, mainly uh, Brad, who was in Pogo. Did you have a, a knowledge or understanding of that world other than your experience as a musician? You know, a bit, yeah, DIY stuff. I mean, you, you'd send it out for review, get reviewed in magazine, Maximum Rock and Roll, and stuff like that, and, or you'd uh, you'd run a small ad in a punk scene or. Um, there was no, there was no Keith Ulrey for you to go to and, yeah. and learn about the, uh, the, the landmines of vinyl pressing and, and it was just the music concert. scene. I mean, yeah. Back then, everybody was buying CDs. I'd do a local band. You could do an album release show or a CD release show and sell a hundred CDs. Well, that's just it. You know, I mean, you, you see here, I've got some various, uh, yeah. paraphernalia from people who've done, but now like people don't really ask you, are you putting out a CD or putting out a tape? Yeah. You know, it's, are you putting out vinyl? And that, it's a very cost prohibitive <laughs> barrier to across for young bands so the first 10 years it was just stuff that me and Susie were in sure so it's basically our vanity label yeah so for the first 10 years from 94 to 2004 5 we only did 10 releases okay like one a year and it's uh, never a money-making endeavor never. yeah but since 2005 to now like yeah. we're going on release 75 wow well and it's, it's 65 releases since then. And yeah. is that pretty much you and Susie still yeah. just doing all the work? 100%. Does she work outside of, of that or no? Well, she, oh, yeah, no. This, her, her involvement with New Granada is basically like um, opinions. Okay. A lot of times final say. She's a talent manager. Or a, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, hey, I want to do this thing. What do you think? That's a terrible idea. Okay, we won't do that. Yeah. yeah. She's your conscience. Like, that's She's my conscience, yeah. yeah. But as far as the, the, the labor and the manufacturing and all that I handle, now, do bands find you? Do you find bands? Is it just um, kind of kismet? It just kind of your paths intersect? And a lot of it is that. I mean, because it's a very it's a varied book of yeah. artists. Yeah. You know, you've got Wreath on one end, yeah. and then you've got who's a Lepesh or whoever yeah. the person yeah. is that yeah. you guys just released. I mean, it's a Honestly, very it's, um, eclectic. It's, it's cool. I mean, it's just when it was really kicking, like two thousand five, two thousand fifteen. I mean, um, well, die, 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 I mean, they're they're one of the bigger acts. On that label, and and you kind of manage them, don't you? Or no? No, I don't manage anybody. Okay. I just, I, well, I'm using a I word as a placeholder for yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they'll come to me for advice. Sure. That's any band. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we certainly don't just put out a record and then let. Yeah. Uh, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. They'll come. Yeah. Like when they toured, when the Alps toured, I like booked their tour for them and stuff. Like sure. That, you know? Now I don't always do that, 
But um, yeah, so we would we were for a while there. I was a promoter at New World, and I would put on five, six, seven shows a month at, the, at New World. Yeah, so you develop these and relationships. Would, like, man, this band, you know, Alexander the Graves from saying these kids are awesome. Hey, man, can I put your CD up? Yeah, and then we do that, and that's just how it worked. Permanent makeup. Yeah, you know. So, and a lot of times it would be a split thing, like where they would say, "Well, we really want to do vinyl." It's like, "Well, that's expensive. You can do the vinyl," and they put it out, and I put out the CD. Yeah, and vice versa. And then in the last, I'd say, and we used to, for a while there, around 2010, we actually got national distribution. So we were getting stuff out there and there was a little bit of money coming in right. that would pay for the next release. Never made a penny off a new granada in my life. It's the label has always been a labor of love that goes into the next release. Well, that's the jealousy that I have. And it's it, it, it can come off as condescending and I don't mean it to because I know the grass is always greener and yeah. by no means is your life an easy one. But you are both feet into what you're passionate about sure. and art yeah. and it's rewarding in ways that what I do isn't rewarding, yeah, but you know, well, there's it's not lost on me. Like when I, when I, when I step back and I look at my life and I go, okay, I own and work at a record store. I own and run a record label. I used to put on shows pretty regularly. I'm also in a well-respected band. It's that's like, fucking it's not lost on me. That's that, pretty rad. That my life revolves around music. Right. And, and it's all, enjoyable yeah there's obviously shitty road bumps and stuff like that but not only that and i don't think it gets seen this way but you know people people respect doctors because how hard it is to become a doctor people respect astronauts you know whatever to do what you do for as long as you've done it sure is quite a achievement i appreciate that um and i respect that you know and and that's that's one of the great things that i love so much about a tom to george or uh you know a, a rob sexton or you or these people who have you know when there's a million points along the way that you could have stepped off the train and went and got a a suit job and you didn't and you know i really respect that i think that's a big deal and it's because of people like you that keep this stuff in our lives for us to enjoy when we're not doing this bullshit job that we do so i appreciate that if i don't say it later thank you now but (laughs) um so how so that's new granada where does microgroove come in so microgroove i I mentioned i worked in a mall record store when i was younger so i always just loved being in record stores whether you know even just to hang out yeah i love the 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 environment and meeting people and talking about you sitting around for hours bullshit and listening to music and stuff and so I did about 10 years in an office job. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, 97 to 2007. And we got bought out by a competitor. And I was a supervisor there. And I was just very fortunate at the time that I got a great severance package. And um, at the time, not dummy because we're in a big heated political conversation about unemployment. Right? Sure. But at the time, you could collect unemployment on top of severance. Yeah. So I filed for unemployment, uh, and then uh, Cappy's had just opened. Right. Pizza, like just opened. And so for about six months, I did dishes there on week, on Fridays and Saturdays, making yeah. a couple hundred bucks a weekend. So for I, I lost my job, and for six months, I was making a triple income. Sure. So what I did with that money was we paid off cars. I mean, we were really smart with it. Well, you, you've yeah. mentioned this to me before that you've learned how to stretch a buck. You've yeah. learned how to yeah. manage money in such a way to yeah. get you through the hard times. Is that something that was instilled in you at an early age? Is no. that something that you've developed over no. your life in music? Is yeah. that okay? We grew up poor and I think it was just, 
you know, I, I did accounting, a little bit of accounting when I worked for the medical company and just numbers and paying the bills. And when Susie and I got married, yeah. you know, obviously I couldn't not pay rent and right. like you did when you were younger. Well, it's true. And it's funny yeah. because me as a divorce attorney, this resonates personally and it resonates with me on a professional level yeah. is, you know, you, every mouth you add to your responsibility, yeah. whether it's employees, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, yeah. you're, you're diminishing your ability to be fucked up and, yeah. and stupid with money. Yeah. And unfortunately, despite people multiplying the number of mouths they're responsible yeah. for, don't always necessarily multiply their sure. financial IQ. Yeah. And that's where problems come up. Well, like for instance, uh, I'll go backwards. Um, Susie and I were married in 2000 and on my way to our rehearsal dinner, I got rear-ended, just a fender bender. Right. And got a check for like a twelve hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, twelve hundred dollars in like in two thousand is a lot of money. Yeah. We just got married, and I was like, so you know, we got married a couple weeks. I go, okay, we got this check. I said I can either get my bumper fixed. I said, or we can pay off this credit card that we used for our honeymoon and some wedding expenses. Yeah. So even then, we were just. Really smart with our money. Anyway. I always think about, <laughs> I don't know if it was Knocked Up or which movie it was, but I always think about Seth Rogen in that movie. He got, he, he, like someone, like a mail truck ran over his toe yeah, yeah, yeah. and he gets like $13,000 yeah. and literally he lives off of it for yeah. like six years. It's sure. so like, that should last me four more years. And I was like, 13 grand would yeah. get me to like July, yeah. you know, but any event. So, yeah. So, I mean, no, we, we were just smart with our money. And so anyway, to get to the point of the record store, what I'm getting at is, what happened was, so a year goes by and I still haven't gone back to work. The unemployment's done. My severance is done, but we're out of debt other than our mortgage. Yeah. And Susie, God bless her, says, why don't you just go get a part-time job? You don't have to go back to the office grind. You really don't have to. Susie, you're easy. And <laughs> may the Lord's look fondly on your <laughs> And coincidentally, call it karma or whatever, I get a call out of nowhere from Lee Wolfson, the owner of Vinyl Fever. I've never met Lee in my life, even though I've been to Vinyl Fever. Yeah. He says, hey, uh, I'm looking for someone to pick up some hours, man. I so you did work there? Yeah, the last four years there. Did you work with Gabe at all? Uh, well, I'll tell you that. Okay. So he just calls me out of nowhere and says, I, I, I hear you used to have some record store experience. Mm -hmm. I said, a long time ago. And he goes, well, I hear you're not working either. Do you want to come? So I met up, boom, started working there. Gabe. Was this the one on Henderson? Yeah, when they were on Henderson okay. the last four years. So Gabe left right when I started. Okay. And then about two years into it, maybe, uh, uh, Gabe came back for like a shift a week. Okay. And a lot of times it coincided with my shift. So oh, yeah, that would cool. be an amazing day oh, to it work. Was fun. Yeah. And Gabe, it was funny because like, um, what a prince of a man. That's when he and I started to really kind of get to know each other and open up. And I was, I'm very opinionated yeah. when it comes to music. And so he would just laugh. He would yeah. say, man, I never pegged you as this guy. I yeah. just hated everything in yeah. the world. And well, it's funny because he's, well, no, it, <laughs> I would say you're, you're, you you definitely your musical intellects are on the level sure. i mean a little bit different time in the scene and a different yeah. slant but you, you you come at it from different ways sure. you know and yeah. so i would love to be a fly on the wall with the two of you yeah. working at the store i loved that store so yeah. I, my earliest recollection though is didn't it used to be like right across from plant high school or so originally it was on the corner of 15th and fletcher Okay. The original brass mug was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was in that caddy corner where that M Scott is, uh, and then it moved to um, Dale Mabry across from Plant. Plant right by the Steak and Shake. Sure. 
And then the last eight years, I want to say, they were open. They moved around the corner about a mile around. Which the is that place is like the fucking Bermuda Triangle for businesses. There's yeah. been like 30 restaurants that have been in there since. But I started so in 2000. I don't know why it was, but around 2008, I started doing jujitsu and it was right around the time my mom was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. And I was looking for an outlet and there was a school that was right on Manhattan. And so, but I would pass by that shop. So Saturdays, there was like a 1030 to 1130 jujitsu class. I'd go do that. And then on the way back and then I didn't have kids yet. So I would hit that store and I love that store. I don't know. (laughs) There's personalities to record stores. Would you agree? There's, I mean, you know, if you want this type of music, you go to this one. If you want this type of music, you go to that one. And that one at that time, if I recall was, I I got my first Baroness album. I got my masked Dawn and, you know, and, and I was still, still, CDs at that time, but there's definitely vinyl in the back part was growing. Yeah. Uh, but I love that store. Whoever was buying for them or selecting their music was right on my wavelength. You know, the thing about Vinyl Fever was it was really a cross section. I mean, so for you, it was that. But we also had plenty of what we would stereotypically call the old man record buyer. Yeah. What I mean by that is these guys coming and going, oh, I hear Leave on Helm of the Band. Yeah. That's a new solo CD out. Right. Like, well, who's buying that? Well, these guys are. Yeah. So we serviced a lot of that as well. Sure. So, I mean, it was just all about perspective, really. Of, right. Of, you know, it really had a cross section of of clientele. You know, one of my favorite stories ever was there was these two young girls in their flipping CDs one day, and I was behind the counter, and one of them goes, "Phil Collins, who's Phil Collins?" And the other girl goes, "You know, from Tarzan." And that just stayed with me forever. I that probably stopped you in your track. It's like I don't even know what string to pull first on that so, knot. <laughs> the point of the story is, is it literally was. Everybody's shot sure. There, you know? Well, that's the whole uh, high fruit. Oh, what's, what's the one with uh, Jack Black and the the high fidelity? I was like, yeah. it's like, By then, it's I will like say, go to the mall. You I know, will say yeah. the last few years of that, that whole kind of uh, curmudgeonly record yeah. store guy, it kind of went by the wayside. Yeah. People started getting a little bit more sensitive. Except for Rob Sexton. You know, uh, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, my wife, she will tell you. She has put me on no call days where I'm not allowed to call her because someone will leave the store and I'll call and go, listen to this shit. Does it get you? Oh, yeah. But I, but you got to put on your face. Have I ever inspired a call? No. Okay, good, 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 good. So, so, okay. So we're getting to microgroove now. So (laughs) she said part-time job. Yeah. You're working, you're working there. I worked at Vinyl Fever until they closed. They closed January, 2011. Okay. And I can remember um, at our final employee meeting, I can remember Lee saying, you know, if, if anybody has any desire to do this. Let me know, and I'd, I'd be willing to give you some advice and mentor. Because dude, they did. What about stock? I mean, you don't sell out of all of it. So what do you do with it when you don't sell out of all of it? What do you mean for Final Fever? Yeah. Well, they sold it down to nothing. Did they really? They did a sale. I worked the last day Final Fever was opening, or and I and I kid you not, they sold all the bins. The bins are at Mojo. When you shop at Mojo, those are the Final Fever. Really? I kid you not. It was an empty room. With nothing, no bins, and there was one thirty-count cardboard box of CDs on the middle. Oh, I wonder who the last band was to sell, like Lit or I something. Remember. I locked <laughs> yeah. those doors. Yeah. I was there. So anyway, so what happened was that was uh, January two thousand, and I can remember thinking, who would open a record store? This one of the greatest record stores in the United States just closed. Yeah. Like vinyl's going away. This is crazy. And then something just happened to me over the summer, man. I just I needed to find a job. Yeah. And I was driving around. With and I had mentioned my dream job would be to open a record store, but I didn't really want to do it. It was just something you talk about. Yeah. And I was driving around, and I still will credit credit them. Uh, Ryan Slauson, the drummer from Sleepy Vikings, uh, we were driving around, and they said one night, uh, 
uh, and you should open a record store in this neighborhood, you know? And I was like, what? She's like, man, this neighborhood's blowing up. You need to do it. And so I got home and talked to Susie and Susie's like, well, why don't you look into it? And so I started to look into it, looking at spaces. And, uh, so what had happened was, um, a friend of mine had told me, they said, Hey, well, you might want to call Carl Webb. Carl used to work at Donald Fever. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about doing the same thing. So I called Carl. Who's the steel worker guy? That's Kenny. Okay, go ahead. Um, uh, so I called Carl and I said, hey, man, it's Keith. Said, What's up, man? I said, dude, I hear you're doing this thing. I said, I got this idea too. And he tells me his whole plan. And I said, well, listen, let me do this for you. He said, because uh, his original idea was to open a record store slash microbrewery. Hence the name microbrewery. Yeah. Oh, well. Yep. I never knew that. Yep. Very and cool. So what happened was he had a lot of red tape to go through. And I said, here's the deal, dude. I said, I really want to do this. I said, I'll give you three months to find your investors and do all that. And if you don't do anything, you give me a courtesy call, pass the baton, and then I'm going to open my shop. Mm. Three months later, he's calling me. Dude, I can't get past the city of Tampa with this liquor crap. Just do it. Well, then I was like, well, if we're just going to open a store, why don't we just, just do it together? Yeah. And so uh, he was on board for about the first eight months. Right. And then he, he left. Um, it just, um, no, no bad story. It just, uh, it's a grind, right? I mean, didn't, he was still working part-time yeah. at office job and, uh, it just wasn't bringing in the money. That well, the only reason to do it is, is because you really are passionate. I mean, well, it, that's what he said when he, when he wanted to leave, he says, listen, man, you've got a handle on this thing. You know what you're doing. I think you can run this thing by yourself. Yeah. You don't need a partner. I need to go back to work. And and I just gave him I gave him the amount of money he put into it and we were that was it done you know what I mean well and so we opened Microgroove in December 2011 um, ten months after Vinyl Fever closed after I said who the hell would open right right store? it's funny because it's <laughs> that's a long time and it's no time at all you know that's, so this this December will be a decade are you gonna do any kind of Special uh, deal? COVID permitting. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I usually do throw an anniversary party. Right. I did last year. Um, I, 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 your, my ears have perked up about the, the coupling of, of the record store with the craft brew, because that's yeah. something I've been talking to Sean O'Brien about and a bunch of other people is, have you ever heard of record bars like over in California where like you can go and they actually have a menu of listening yeah. to I, I, it's that idea? I'm sure it's financially the worst idea ever, but it sounds like an, I would tell you this and I'm not afraid to tell you this yeah. in your face. Do not open a record store in the Bay Area. Yeah. Well, I, I have no. <laughs> um, I've, had, I've had people come to me for advice and I straight up tell them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, why not? I said, dude, there's 17 stores. What I want to do, yeah. sorry to cut you off, oh, is please. there's got to be, I, I'm, and I, the problem is, is I'm, you're like, oh, just, you don't even know what you don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I feel like there's got to be a hack in the vinyl world, the vinyl pressing. And we've had the conversation a million times. I won't make you have it again with me is you can either, either cut a record one at a time for the length of time it takes to make one, mm-hmm. or you can spend three, four grand on this number of records, That's sell it. 10 of them and warehouse the rest. I, I refuse to believe that there's not some digital it's, vinyl interface. It's like some- saying, it's like saying, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a civilian of the earth and I'm on the ground and I want to go to the moon. Well, there's only one way to get to the moon. There's no moon. <sighs> I'm watching billions too much. Have you, have you, have you, that's got to be the next one. I, I got to give you my uh, showtime login because billions, Bobby Axelrod, he's just 
you know, he's like, I want a bank. And they're like, you can't have a bank. You can't have a bank. He's like, okay, but I'm going to get a bank. And they're like, there's no way you've been sued a million times. You have the worst (laughs) reputation in the world. The the federal government is never going to give you the licensure. It's like, okay, you're going to go on this flight with me. And by the time we land, I want my plan for, you know, anyway, I just, I just feel like a world where it's easier to press vinyl and press it in a smaller run where you're not losing your shirt needs to exist somehow. Absolutely not. Oh, well. And I and I hear bands talk about it all the time on boards where they're like, you know, I don't understand. You know, I just want to press 50, 100 records. And why, why do I have to make 300? And it's so expensive. And they always talk about the money. Well, yeah. I sell this many. My comment to those bands all the time is if you're putting out a record to make money. Yeah. And don't you should. It's a false a premise. It's you a false put out a record. Yeah. If you're in a band that you love and you're passionate about and you want to put out a record and, and have people listen to it. Then put your record out. That's what I, so that's what I, that's what I'd like about it. I really like the, the collector. I like, I like the visual, the tangible, yeah. the, the experience, the, you know, and yeah. this is all hack stuff that anybody who's into vinyl have had this conversation sure. a million times, sure. but you know, it's becoming a thing. And then the other thing that I'm really interested to see where this goes, whether it just fizzles out or if it becomes a, a whole new revolution is this whole NFT deal. Um, because uh, a lot of the non-fungible token, oh, the, the blockchain, God. I know it's, it's, it's deflating and it's seems contrary to the very thing. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but it's, it's on the tip of everybody's tongue. This is what everybody's talking about now. And it seems like more of a marketing tool than a, a vehicle for expression or a vehicle for art, but it's, it's out there and people are talking about it. So I'm wondering if there's going to be some evolution of it that becomes a a new way that we talk about music or whatever else, but it's early days. I get it. Well, I I mean, you know, I had a Michael J. Wolf. He's got this butt water video that he's making into a non-fungible token. And Lady Gaga has got like some single that only 10 people are going to be able to own. And, you know, I know where I kind of entered into the conversation is I was talking to my buddy who's super blockchain guy talks about it all the time. And I kind of, my eyes glaze over and roll back in my head. And I'm like, I don't know. It just all, (laughs) it all seems like a racket or a, a pokes or whatever to me but he's like well you got to look at this because tops right now are market testing what they want to do with their baseball cards but they're market testing it with garbage pail kids and so he was showing me these garbage these digital garbage pail kids that are worth 10 20 30 thousand dollars like i still don't fully understand it and it's been explained to me a hundred times i still don't fully understand it but it's found out through back channels is my cousin actually was doing them for garbage pail kids that he was telling me about him and so now with the baseball cards one of the cool things about it, and this is where I, this is where I'm going to bring it back to you, is with <laughs> these things, the publisher makes money on each subsequent sale. Okay. So, whereas you before you sold an album, that's the last money you're making on that album. Now you make the money on it and you sell it to somebody, and then maybe they sell it to a record store. And they make the way that these work is. Every time there's an exchange, a percentage is going back to the publisher, yeah. and so that's. The mechanics of that and the implications of that is what kind of interests me to see how sure. that'll that'll work its way out. So I'll I'll wrap up soon. I wanted to ask you. We talked about uh, well, there's probably a million things I'll forget. So hopefully you'll come back on. But um, we talked about the personality of a record store. And so my question to you is: Is the personality of a record store something that happens by design, or is it really just a projection of the manifestation of the owner's personality? I think, no, I think it's a, well, I think it's a legit thing. I mean, think about this. 
prior to streaming, prior to YouTube, prior to the internet, you know, record store people were tastemakers. Yeah. I mean, you had the radio, but if you really wanted to find something cool, some underground. Well, especially with the whole tape trade or the overseas new wave of British heavy metal, you know, that's, you know, you hear about, that's how you. It was, you know, and I can remember going into when I was young, going into the, you know, there was a store called the Alternative Record Store, Final Fever. I mean, those guys were gods. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you'd go in and go, hey, what's the hot new thing? Yeah. You know, like, like I mentioned earlier, I've been in the shop 10 years. I can count on both hands, less than both hands, how many times somebody has bought something that's been playing in the shop. Yeah. It doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Because people, they, they, they listen to music differently. So the point I'm getting at is, is I think that attitude of we know all, I know all, you listen to garbage. Um, it, it, while it's an outdated concept or, 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 or stereotype, it definitely, it's definitely grounded in some sort of reality. Sure. You know, because it's a peddler, you know, and I hate to use an analogy like a drug dealer, but mm-hmm. if it's, this guy's the drug dealer and he's the one supplying then you're not going to argue with them what's good and what's not. You know right. what I mean? So, you know, uh, that's just, I think that's where that comes from is, is this, this, they know all. And then you add in just your classic element of just Taste. retail nightmares of just the way people act and the things they say and do and what the questions they ask. And, just, you know. Well, one of the things like you always talk, you know, when you're putting your, your videos online, you know, I've had some restocks and there's, the usual suspects of who you're restocking. So at some point you guys have distilled, I know that I can sell this and I know that this won't fucking sell. So, you know, uh, there's, 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 uh, you know, I'm drawing a blank now, but every time I see one of your posts, there's a few bands that come up, you know, a lot of times. It's funny, Rob and I from Planet Retro St. Pete, you know, you talk about Tampa Bay, Tampa St. Pete, oh, it's connected, but it really is not the different clientele we have. So, for instance, like, he and I talk every day, all day long. Do you really? Oh, yeah. And I wasn't aware. That's cool. Okay, well, it's, it's kind of what we're talking about. Like, listen yeah. to this yeah. person just said to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, anyway. Uh, You're the Henry Rollins and Ian Mackay of the Tampa Bay area. Yeah. yeah. So, the point I'm getting at is, though, is it's like, you know, I, you'll see like a sub pop order. Yeah. You know, and, and, and Rob's like, Man, I can't believe you, you use constant. And, I, and I'll say... Dude, I sold five Beach House albums this weekend. Yeah. And he's like, I haven't sold five Beach House albums in a decade. Yeah. So it's really interesting, the clientele difference. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not exaggerating. Like, dude, I'll order in a sub pop order and I will, I will sell out of the shins in, in a week and have to reorder it all again. And he's like, dude, I haven't sold a shins record in six months. Man, that second album was you know? perfection. But anyway, <laughs> um, well, it's true. And, and, and here's, here's where I've seen it. You know, apart and aside from vinyl, one of the things I love talking about is live music, concert venues, yeah. festivals, who's playing where. Sure. And I have tried desperately to get St. Pete people on this show. And you'd think they live in fucking Portland. Yeah. It's like, I'm not driving over there. And it's right. like, you do it on Zoom. And it's like, I can do it on Zoom, yeah. but it's not the same experience no. as having the person in front of you. It goes the other way around too. Like, I can't tell you. There, I would say traditionally St. Pete people are more apt to come to Tampa. So for instance, take a, take a crowbar or New World. Well, it used to be that way because you know of I mean? Ebor. Yeah. And, oh, there's a show. Cool. Yeah. Let's go. We're even at the shop microgroup. Hey, right. And you, you want to come play? Sure. And then somebody says, dude, I'm playing at a, I don't know what, whatever was around. Yeah. You know, Fubar, which is yeah. not anymore. Yeah. She's using it as an example. When is it? Friday night. Uh, I don't want to drive across the bridge. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I do. Like I said, I'm 49, born and raised in Tampa. 
Dude, I haven't been to St. Pete in years. You know? Well, <laughs> from a live music perspective, for a very long time, yeah. Tampa was where you were playing. Yeah. There were places in St. Pete and 100%. Clearwater, but sure. one for, you know, every 10 yeah. over here. Yeah. So I just think that that's the way it is. But then stylistically, I feel like there's much more of a reggae world music kind of community over there. It's the beach community. Uh, yeah. So, you know, a lot of people yeah. that play at the hideaway or yeah. play at uh, whatever the place at Clearwater, you know. Yeah. So, it's beach rock or yeah. beach, you know, yeah. eagles or yacht rock or reggae or world music, I you know. Fair. Yeah. But I, I wish that there was more of a cohesive unit. Um, well, and there is. I mean, I'm not here. I'm not one of these people that's talking, you know, the 727 versus the 813, you know. Yeah, yeah. Camp is better. It's just, I mean, it's facts are facts. I mean, to me, it's one scene. You know, like I said, when I was a promoter and I would book touring bands, I would tell them, do not book a show in St. Pete. Yeah. It is the same music scene. Like if you play in Tampa and I'm put on your show, I'm going to. They're coming to your show in I'm Tampa. Advertise to those people as well. You're just going to dilute your brand, dilute your. Yeah. Do that. And sometimes they'd still do it because they don't understand. You know? Yeah. So it's like playing Dallas Fort Worth or something. Like yeah. That. You know what I mean? No, like, that makes sense. So, uh, Fest has been announced. Yeah. You guys are tentatively. Yeah. I mean, as of right now, you know, yeah. it's our only show booked for the year right now. And so, uh, you know, do you guys start rehearsing soon or do you guys well, write any new we, content for we it? We're practicing. We practice once a week. And uh, last year we stopped practicing just before the pandemic. Yeah. Just because we had a crazy two years and we were like, let's take a few weeks off. And then the pandemic hit. So we didn't practice from February until August of last year at all. And we were supposed to be writing a new album. We had plans to go to Baltimore and record a new album in Baltimore on, in September. Why in Baltimore? With Jay Robbins, oh, okay. the producer who yeah. we recorded with the last one yeah. from uh, East Jawbox yeah. from Airlines. And um, well, when you're not rehearsing, you're not writing anything. Right. So we started practicing again in August, fully masked. And we would have a couple of weeks off or we would have a couple COVID scares where, oh, I came in contact with this person and stuff. And then, um, but it was pretty regular. Uh, and then in January, we stopped again just to be safe. Yeah. And we were like, you know what? Let's just wait until we're all vaccinated. So we're all fully vaccinated. We, we rehearsed a couple weeks ago. We're actually practicing tonight. We're really excited. Very cool. So I, I, heard the, to, I heard through the grapevine that your space may be available for sharing. Is that, is that? Uh, maybe this is an off-air conversation. Off yeah, that's an off-air <laughs> off conversation. I'll, I'll have a post-production. We'll cut that out. Um, in any event. Uh, so, yeah, we're hoping to get back to our weekly schedule, continue writing. Our goal, not plan, but goal is to play fast and then hopefully get up to Baltimore and record with Jay by the end of the year. That'd be badass. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm such a noob to the fest world, yeah. so I, I've kind of become more aware of it over time. And obviously, sure. my buddy Greg, you know, they were they did the Misfits yeah. cover night. And that, you know, if you, anything anything that's Misfits, Minor Threat, but, you know, that yeah. I know that's hack, but that just speaks to me. Uh, and so this this year, they're doing Minor Threat, yeah. uh, Minor Threat one night. And so I'm, I want, I'm talking to Elliot, everything else, and then like two weeks ago it's like oh we're sold out and i'm like motherfucker yeah. so now i'm on the exchange trying to figure out wristband trades and i'm like sometimes you can buy one ticket to one show 
I would. I just want to go for the weekend. I told Greg, look, I'll get a place. We'll stay up there and hang out because there's, uh, you know, Elliot's playing up there. You're playing up yeah. there. Greg's playing up there. And then there's a couple. I, I wouldn't mind seeing Gorilla Biscuits, yeah. Hot Water Music, yeah. uh, some of these other people that are playing. So yeah. I just want to go experience yeah. it. We're but. excited. I mean, it's 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 that trepidation of, you know. Sure. We're, we're moving cautiously, but we're very excited. The other thing, too, is fest. It's like. It's kind of like with the COVID thing and the pandemic. It's like, you know, we, we didn't go to a restaurant for 14 months. Yeah. It's not that I didn't trust the restaurants. And I the people. The people. Yeah. Fest people. Gainesville, College the, Town. Fet, yeah. I trust the punks at Fest. Yeah. Those people, I, I, I trust that crowd and that scene to do what's correct politically, socially. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not too particularly worried about it. Um, I'm just anxious, you know. So that's our only show in the books. You know, we came out of a two years where we were just touring and recording and the whole thing. So COVID just came, slammed us done. So there is a little bit of that too, where it's like we, we were on this huge high and then slam on the brakes for a year and a half. Right. And now it's like, well, okay, now we're almost kind of starting over. You know what I mean? Does, does the label have any other albums coming out in the near future? Um, well, let's see. It, it's down to where for years we were doing five, six, seven things a year. And now we're just doing like one album a year. Okay. So for instance, like last year. You did Wreath right at the beginning of COVID. Right. And that was a cassette. That yeah. was easy. And then we did a Bob Nana album. Yeah. He's from Braid. Hang yeah. Ladies. Um, we did a uh, Jawbreaker on cello. Yeah. One with Gordon Withers, which I'm temporarily sold out. We're repressing it again. It's just, it's sold so many copies. We've done very well with it. And the band has helped us promote it and the whole thing. And then this year is the Little Pesh record from right. New York. that just came out in April, and they're still riding high. Doing really I saw well. the video came out and all that other stuff. Yeah, so that's going really well. So right now, we've got a couple special um, digital only releases that we're working on that I think people will be really excited about that we'll mention later on. You find those on the website, or how did those uh, get announced on social media? Social media, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Like that. Very cool. So right now, that's that's where the label's at right now. I don't have any physical releases lined up. Um, we, but like I said, we've got a couple um, digital remasters that I think people are going to be really stoked on. Very cool. Keith, it's been amazing. I am sure I asked about a tenth of what I wanted to. So <laughs> we'll do another one. maybe maybe as we get closer to Fest or after Fest, sure. we could do a post game. How did it go type of situation? I really appreciate uh, having made your friendship, uh, patron patronizing your store, having <laughs> you in the neighborhood, having you as a resource to educate me on the history of music in Florida <laughs> and the, the do's and don'ts of. Uh, well, but that's good. You've probably <laughs> saved me more money than I've spent in your store just by. Talking me out of, yeah. you know, putting money on, you know, pressing, <laughs> pressing vinyl. Thank you so much. All right. Man, you I'm take care. Really